Hey, do you guys have a Bible? Go ahead and open back up to Genesis chapter 3, which David read for us uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, um, there are Bibles on this table to my back left. Um, feel free to grab one of those or um, throw a hand up and we can uh, bring you one. Um, awesome. Anybody else? Anybody else see one? Perfect. Um, yeah, that's our gift to you. Keep that. Um, take it home. Like, bring it back next week because we're going to be in Genesis for a while. So, um, yeah. Hey, what a, what a great weekend. Um, hopefully, if you're, if you're new to Carrollton, um, hopefully you're settling in well to the new um, to the new normal, right? That's kind of what's going on right now in this season. So um, we are uh, in uh, the beginnings of the book of Genesis. We started last week um, with Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is kind of the way that we function, okay? So if you're new, um, hey, let me lay this out for you. Um, we are totally sold in on something that I want to refer to as um, sequential exposition. Now that seems like really fancy, and so what does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that we um, typically, for like 98% of the year, um, go through books of the Bible. That we begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and we work through the end of the book. That's the way that we um, do things. And so um, sequentially, right, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we work our way through, um, through books of the Bible. We have bitten off quite a chunk right here with, um, with Genesis. Genesis is a book that many of you are probably familiar with, um, given that it's like right there, right? As soon as you open it up, there it is, right? Um, a lot of the stories in Genesis we are uh, familiar with. Um, and so uh, one thing that we want to do as we go through this book is to um, take a really broad approach, okay? We talked last week about um, this this illustration that Jacqueline Eves drew um, for us um, that matters out the first 11 chapters. And what's so interesting is like literally um, like almost the whole thing is just there in the first like three chapters. Um, and so like we're all the way over to like here. This is all the first three chapters. And so when you talk about um, when you talk about establishing a framework that assists in reading the rest of the Bible, Genesis does that, specifically the first three chapters. We love the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. We want to be super familiar um, with these first three chapters because, as we're going to talk about in just a few minutes, it really does set the pace um, and provide a framework by which we understand the rest of Scripture. Okay, with a, if, we, if we misunderstand the first uh, book of the Bible, if we misunderstand the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible, there is um, a high probability that we will misunderstand and misrepresent the rest of the redemptive narrative. Okay, does that make sense? Right? Like, that's how important this is, right? This is like, this is day one stuff. Everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten, right? Like, you got to get those things right so that you can then have um, success as you continue on, okay? And so that's the approach that we are taking to the book of Genesis. We're taking a really broad approach. Um, we're looking at the entirety of chapter 3 this morning as we observe um, the curse and the cross. We see a disrupted order and a great reversal, right? We're going to kind of like tag this morning with these ideas or concepts that we're going to unpack further. That would be it, right? We see this, this curse, and we see this foreshadowing to the cross. We see a disrupted order and a great reversal. 
A disrupted order and a great reversal. That makes sense um, for those of us who were here last week. But if you weren't, or it was just a really crazy week last week, right? And you forgot some of the things that we talked about. When we looked at chapter 1 and 2, one of the things that we observed and said again and again was, Wow, look at this God who creates order out of this wild wasteland. Now he brings he brings order and he um, provides this environment that is um, more than suitable for human flourishing, and that's kind of where we we left it last week. Wow! If you just close the book there um, at Genesis chapter two, uh, wow, amazing, right? Like everything is going everything is going well. Humanity is managing this beautiful world that God has created and ordered. They are reflecting Him as they were created. To do, only that's not the end of the story, right? That's not the that's not the end of the story because what we find as we transition into chapter three is a detrimental and destructive dialogue between Eve and this serpent, right? Chapter one and two, we see the creation of this ideal utopian world made up of diverse elements that come together. To work in cohesion, all displaying the glory of God. Genesis 1 and 2. Here it is. The glory of God on display. We see creation. We see ordering and thriving. We see coexistence and life. We see a joy-filled embrace of God's natural design for work. And the human responsibility to manage God's world, exercising authority over it. Reflecting, reflecting Him, created in His image, creating more reflectors of Him. Right, this call to be fruitful and multiply. Right, we see God in and through creation, extending His image throughout creation. This is a beautiful way for us to begin understanding the redemptive narrative. This is what God is doing. And here's what I mean by redemptive narrative. I'm talking about like Genesis to Revelation. Okay? This story, this beautiful story of God's great love and rescue for sinners. God is extending his glory over all creation. We think about even now, like let's step out of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 for just a moment and let's consider what we uh, see in terms of the call of Christ upon the lives of his disciples to go and what? To like make more disciples, to make more um, rescued, redeemed reflectors of this glorious God. We see his name expanding throughout all of creation. This is God's goal. This is God's desire. And we don't observe it just from a New Testament perspective, but we see it here in the very beginning. In Genesis 3.1, we are introduced to the infinitely weaker, rebellious counter to God. We're introduced in Genesis 3. Three, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, to Satan, the enemy of life and the author of lies. Look with me at Genesis 3, verse 1, as we continue to unpack this detrimental and destructive dialogue. The serpent, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, begins, begins conversating, right? We see this conversation develop. We observe one who is cast out of the presence of God. 
that is now warring against his good creation. Satan, our enemy, right? What a, what a, what a tagline, what a title. Satan, the enemy, right? We see an unpacking of his attributes. We see that he is deceptive, but persuasive. We see that he is perverse and manipulative. We see that he is damaging and extremely destructive, ultimately responsible for the broken condition of our human existence. Right? The, the broken condition of the human experience in conjunction with our fallen after effects. The serpent engages Eve in what would prove to be a most destructive dialogue. Now, one thing that I want us to do is I want us to perhaps take a new approach to the center of the dialogue and this, um, this, this, this issue that is to arise. We know that the dialogue is not so much about fruit, right? Although it does play this, 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 this role, right, like in the story, but it's ultimately, it's ultimately... A questioning of the very nature of God. That's what it's all about. It's not, it's not so much about fruit, but it's about the nature of God. And so let's consider a few things that we know about God, having unpacked the attributes of the enemy, right? You guys remember those? Did you, did you take note? Deceptive, persuasive, perverse, manipulative, damaging, and destructive. Well, let's step back and let's consider what we know about God observable from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We see that God is good and he brings order. We see that God brings clarity, right? He distinguishes heaven from earth and light from dark, day from night, land from water. There's this separation that takes place. He distinguishes. Whereas the enemy is persuasive, we see, based on the first two chapters of this wonderful book, that God is all-powerful, and he does as he desires. He does not need to persuade, okay? He just, he just does. Whereas the enemy of Genesis 3.1 is manipulative, we know, based on the first two chapters, that God is not. Instead, he brings perfect Clarity, right? He has always brought exposure of what lies in the darkness. This, again, is not a New Testament characteristic, but one that is connected directly to creation. As opposed to uh, being damaging or destructive, God, as we have seen and established last week, brings life and order and desires human flourishing. There is an implicit element to this dialogue that we see between this crafty beast and the reflectors of God's image. Look with me again at verse 1. What is the first question that this deceptive, perverse serpent brings to Eve, this reflector of the glory of God? Well, he says this, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We're familiar with the question, right? Here's the question. Did God actually say this? We see that the serpent 
seeks to cast doubt upon the very character of God. We see the serpent attacking the character and the nature of God, bringing into question his goodness and his kindness, bringing into question his extreme generosity. And he does so in this most manipulative way, by by slightly shifting the perspective, right? God has, has clearly stated that all trees were to be enjoyed but one, right? Yes. Amen. Only Satan does what? Like he shifts this, doesn't he? Like he, he shifts it slightly as though uh, by withholding one, God is withholding all. And that for God to withhold anything was to be cruel and unjust. And so do we see what Satan does there? Do we see what the enemy does there? Do we see what the author of lies does there? He brings into question the word of God, which then directly connects to the very nature and character of God. And he does so by by slightly shifting the perspective. Oh wait, God said not to enjoy the trees in the garden, right? No, actually, that's not what God said. This is not who God is. He is not cruel. He is not unkind. He is not oppressive. But the enemy's desire is this. The enemy's desire is to paint this picture of God in which he is these things. Cruel, unkind, and oppressive. That if the enemy can paint this picture for Adam and his bride, then why in the world would they desire obedience and intimacy with him? If this is who God is, if he is in, in fact cruel and unkind and oppressive, then why would you desire to live in accordance with his instruction and his word, right? This is a question that humanity continues to wrestle with, isn't it? Right? Like we continue to feel this. We observe the wrestling nature of our culture with this very question. This is the way that sin works, okay? Like this is how it works. An exposition of sin for just a moment. This is the way that sin works. This is what sin says. Sin says at its root that God is insufficient to satisfy. Did you know that? Like that's what sin is ultimately about. Right? That that God is incapable. That God is insufficient of truly satisfying our souls and our desires, our longings, and our expectations. Satan both tempts and tests the woman, at which point Eve, initially, this is incredible, responds correctly. Wait a second. What? Yeah, it's right here. Let's look at it. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Did God not say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? No, that's not what God says. And so he brings this clarity into this conversation, at least initially. Right? Eve points back to the word of God to combat the enemy of God. Here's the deal. When we consider sin and the way that it works and what it says and we feel its effects and we observe it all around us, which we're going to continue to unpack. A question that we naturally come to is, okay, how do we, how do we go about combating this? Right? Sin in me. Right? And sin observable in the world around me. How do we go about combating these issues, these heart issues? And what we see 
in the world. Well, we get a beautiful illustration of what this looks like initially from Eve taking the serpent back to the word of God, but ultimately in Christ. Right? Christ Jesus employs the same response when tempted by the same enemy in the wilderness following his baptism. Right? Here, do this. And all of this shall be yours. At which point Jesus, on multiple occasions, takes the enemy, the author of lies, and the great manipulator back to God's word. Saying, it is sufficient. Like God's word. God is sufficient. That anything that is, that is lacking is loss. Right? That, that I ought not even desire, but instead to enjoy what God has made abundantly available. Only unlike Jesus, and oftentimes you and, and I, Eve, and we do not maintain the course. Right? We choose to add to God's word in a similar way as we observe Eve do in verse 3. Look with me at verse 3. You're like, how are we going to get through all of Genesis chapter 3? We're three verses in, and we're talking like 20 minutes already, right? These are so important. <laughs> verse, um, verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So it appears as though Eve initially, like, right response, like, Solid trajectory. Everything is going. Everything is going well, right? I've got this picture in my mind of like a um, like a like a space shuttle being launched, right? Like, okay, here we go. It's it's in the air, right? And it's going up, and everything seems to be going well. But then all of a sudden, like it just slightly shifts, and everybody on the ground goes, "Oh my goodness, this isn't good, right? Something something bad has happened. We've taken a, a turn." Towards the worst. That's what we observe taking place in verse 3. We have no indication in God's word that this instruction came from the Lord. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. As one commentator put it, for all we know, Adam could have built a tree house in the tree if he desired. The instruction is really clear. The, the instruction is do not eat. Do not eat of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Eve shows us here the danger of adding to or taking away from God's word. We use this, um, we use this illustration often here. And so allow me to like beckon us all back to it and invite you in for just a moment. We refer to and um, visualize God's word as being this line. Right? I'm, I'm not going to draw on the board. Everything in me wants to grab a piece of chalk and just do things. But I'm not. I'm not going to mess it up. It's too pretty. It looks too great. I'm not going to do it, Jacqueline. I told her I might, but I'm not. Okay? So imagine this line. We're going to just think in like multiple dimensions here for just a moment. Imagine this line. And this is representative of God's word. Right? Now, the temptation observed here and the practice that we see is an addition to God's word. That is, um, here's our line. Right? It's running parallel to you. Um, is to add something. Right? To this thing. Like this way. We're adding to. This is God's word. But, but now we seem to be going above it. Right? Where we're adding something that we have no indication that God actually said based on what uh, Moses records for us here in the first three chapters. In addition, um, there is another pitfall that we often that we often find ourselves a part of, and that is to take away from God's word, 
right? And so it's God says this. Well, no, God didn't actually say that. Or it's to say, well, God said this, but surely he didn't mean that. And so it's either adding things to, like we're putting books on the shelf, or we're taking them them off. And we're interpreting them uh, for, our, for our own benefit, for our own purposes, our own desires. And what do we find so oftentimes happens when that is the outcome? Well, um, disaster, right? Like disaster, total disaster. We want to, as a people, um, observe what God has said. We want to we want to understand it, and we want to read it, um, seeing on display the heart of God. We want to understand not only what God has said, but we want to understand God's heart in and through what He has said. The snake is seeking to shift the perspective that God is withholding, that God is holding out. What we want to do is we want to approach God's word and we want to go, man, God desires, God desires good for those who are created in his image. Right? He, he desires the glory of his name to expand to the ends of the earth. Right? He desires fellowship and intimacy with rebellious creatures. Right? And as a result, he seeks us and he saves us. The cross of Christ is evidence of this. Your salvation is evidence of this. Right? This is who God is and this is the way that God functions. This is what he does. It is reflective of his nature. This is what we learn about the nature of God. What do we learn about the nature of the enemy? Look with me at verse 4. We're moving right along. The serpent said to the woman, No. Right? Like, surely, surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This will be the, the, the outcome, right? This is, this, is what this, this is what this looks like, at which point we transition into verse 6 and observe a major shift in the human narrative. Right? I love the way that Jacqueline illustrated this up here for us. Here's where we are, for those of you who, um, I, I don't know, again, like you can't read it. And so check it out later. But, but here's where we are in the storyline, right? And we're at this point in which we, um, we observe God's good definition of good and evil, right? Like the separation that has taken place and his instruction and humanity's choice. Right to, to embrace this or to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves. Right, You'll know good and evil. Well, why don't I decide what is good and evil? Why don't I determine what that is? Why don't I dictate that? Does this sound at all familiar? Right? Like, this is the world that we live in. Right? Allow me to determine. Allow me to dictate. You tell me I'll know good and evil. Well, I'll be the judge of that. Right? Perhaps you are dressing this, um, this particular uh, perspective up and you are making it an enemy when in fact, man, like this is a close friend of mine. Right? Like, this is what's happening here. I will determine. Like God has clearly, he is clearly distinguished, but I think that I will step into this role, right? I'll step into the void. I will be God and I will determine for myself what is in fact good and evil. And that's exactly what happens. All right, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so she took up its fruit and she ate. Then she went and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate also. Now in just a moment we're going to talk about sin's consequence and the curse. At this point we are only unpacking the dialogue. 
Right? What are we learning by way of the dialogue and the destruction that is sure to respond, to, 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 to follow? But, but what we can say before we leave this and transition into the consequence and the curse is this. That the degree of damage, as we see in verse 6, has been uh, done. Right, The rebellion of man from God is observed and its effects would ripple out throughout creation. Beginning here. It begins here in the garden. The irony, right? Like you have this, this magical place that is set apart from this from this wild, raw wilderness. That as we emphasized over and over again last week, is, is designed to produce human flourishing, life flourishing, images of God, absent of need. Now, in light of what we observe in this chapter stand in the greatest human need imaginable. Right? We see man's discontentment with reflecting God obliterated as man's desire to be God supersedes his instruction for his creation. And the result is grave consequence and curse. Right? The damage of the fall is undeniable. The damage of what we observe in verses 1 through 6 is undeniable. We see it in the world around us. Right? We, we feel it in our persons. And at night, we all lock our doors because we understand that the world that we are living in is broken. Right? That it is not how it ought to be. Whereas there was once complete transparency and honesty and confidence, there is now, in creation, shame. Let's think for a moment how far we have come in just a few verses. Right? The delight of the fruit has taken the place of delight in God and His design. That's what we see from Eve here um, in in these, these few verses, verse 6, she sees that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. It is now more desirable than God's good design. This is humanity's story. This is our story. This sin is so oftentimes more desirable than God's good design and intent. And as a result, God, uh, being holy and just brings about, again, this separation, right? This, this world that was created to cultivate life would now come under the curse of sin, the consequence for rebellion. And we see it in verse 7. Look with me at verse 7. We're just going to read these things, okay? Then the eyes of both were opened, and then he knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make for themselves loincloths. Isn't that so interesting? I was having a conversation this past week with Ben Clark. We were just talking on Monday morning over, over where we were going to be um, going this week in Genesis. And I couldn't help but think about just how in these short verses you go from this scene in which man, Adam, is presented with his bride from the Lord. And he just sings, right, of like her beauty. 
right? And, and how, how wonderful she is, as now there is this, this counterpart for him, a helpmate, right? Desirable. And now we see, following the entrance of sin into the world, that they are just grabbing at leaves, seeking to cover themselves. How far have we come? In just a few, in just a few verses. Verse 8, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Wow, humanity observed and experienced this perfect intimacy with God. Fellowship with him, fellowship with one another that you and I are incapable of fully comprehending on this side of eternity. And now we see that they are hiding themselves from themselves, right? And they're hiding from the Lord. Like the best things are just like being torn apart before our very eyes. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Well, that's new, isn't it? Right? Like shame, we've observed that. Now we've got fear. These are things that were not a part of God's design, right? But they're now, they're now here. Because I was naked and I hid myself, verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Like this is all new knowledge that has entered into as a result of this um, devilish snake and your bold rebellion. Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? Verse 12. The man said, hey, um, her fault. Right? The woman who you gave uh, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate. So, yeah. Passing the blame, right? From, from right here, the very beginning. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so you just got, like, this is, um, like, I think I observed a similar dialogue uh, at like a, um, like, a, like a second grader's birthday party a couple of months ago, right? Like, it wasn't me, it was them, no, not them, him, no, her, no, okay, and everybody's just pointing, and it's just total, total chaos. And so we've got shame and um, fear and disorder. And confusion. Like, there's just all these things. These are just three, like, really practical examples of the fall that we observe here in the first 12 verses of chapter 3. So, the Lord says, alright, let's deal first with the, um, with the serpent. Let's deal with the enemy. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On, the belly you sh- on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. Now that's verse 14. What we're going to do is we're going to skip verse 15 for just a moment, and we're going to continue unpacking this curse that results from sin's entrance. Okay, we're coming back to verse 15 though. Okay, don't forget that. That is um, incredibly important. Verse 16, moving on to the woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Verse 17, let's move on. Adam, your turn. No stitch of creation goes unaffected by what we've observed in these past few verses. That remains true today. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Again, clarity in terms of the conversation around the tree. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat uh, the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. And so now we've got this added element, right? We have shame. We have fear. We have confusion. And now we have death. Right? Your Your days are numbered. None of us are getting out of here alive. To the dust you shall return as you were taken from it. Now I want us to to, to kind of start at the top. Imagine this like upside down triangle for just a moment. We're going to start up here um, and we're going to talk really broadly for just a moment. And then we're going to narrow it and then we're going to narrow it even more. Okay, so let's go on a journey together. You guys ready? Here we go. Theologically, we see here the fall. What's referred to as the fall. Sin's, like, injection into creation. And what it means in and for the world. And as a result of Adam's rebellion, we see that broken people now occupy a broken world. Yesterday afternoon, we were at home, and my son Judah um, has taken kindly to a certain nativity set that is made of clay in our home. He sits on one of the, um, the side tables, like right there in our living room. And he loves to play with the pieces, but again, they're made of clay. And so, like, they break really easily. And now it is just, like, total carnage around this nativity, right? Like, I mean, it's just, like, there's um, missing arms and, like, we've got a wise man without a head. And um, our, like, stable cave is kind of, like, broken and chipped. And, like, there's one solid piece and it's baby Jesus. Like, I'm not saying that there's any, like, thing there, but, like, interesting, <laughs> right? Okay? And so um, yesterday Judah was playing with all of these pieces. And when he finished, I just, as I always do, I feel I'm just, like, like a, like, a, like a soldier, like cleaning up after the battle, right? I'm just like sweeping up pieces, and I'm, they're all laid out. And I go, man, this is, this is it, right? Like this is what the world looks like now. Like broken people in a broken world, right? Like we're observing it here physically, and there are times that we observe it here physically, but certainly spiritually, right? We are broken people who now occupy a broken world. Genesis 3 makes sense of the chaos that we Feel If you don't feel chaos, then um, at least in certain seasons, then I would venture to guess that you are um, perhaps, and I mean this in the kindest way possible, just like super naive, okay? Like that you're, you're a little bit out of touch, right, with like your surroundings and circumstances and feelings and emotions, like, you know, have a good cry or something, okay? Because... This is the world we live in. It's chaotic. It's confusing. It's disordered. In Genesis 3, we see a speaking towards our condition, where we are and who we are. Why are we troubled? Why are we anxious? Why are we fearful? Why is there death and decay? Why is there brokenness? Where is, why is there struggle? The answer to all of these questions, while they are diverse, is the same. Sin. Sin is the reason. Sin is the reason that we are troubled. Sin is the reason that we are anxious. Sin is the reason that we are fearful. And oftentimes, even as God's people lack boldness in terms of living mission. right? Sin is the reason that there is death. Sin is the reason that there is decay and brokenness. Sin is the reason that we struggle. We observe here in the consequences of man's rebellion, not the genesis, not the beginning of work, because we know that that existed from the beginning. 
before the fall. But we see now that work will be difficult. What does that mean? Dude, everybody is about to connect here, okay? If you feel like I'm kind of out here and I'm out here, maybe they're out here, we're all about to come back to the margins, okay? Work is difficult, right? It's not always enjoyable. Perhaps at times you, in your own specific uh, context, places of work and employment feel unappreciated with gains that at times do not reflect the labor that preceded them. Is this at all familiar? Anybody, anybody feeling this in terms of work? Right? Work is not a consequence of the fall, but we now see that hard work is. Right? And it's hard in these, in these many different areas. We see as a result of Adam's sin, conflict within relationships. The enemy and image bearers and occupiers of this world, all just like this, just colliding with one another. Do you ever feel like that, right? Do you ever feel like I'm just like colliding? Like life is like bumper boats and we are just like banging into one another. Me and like this dominion of darkness and this like dark kingdom, like banging into one another. Like me and other image bearers, like we're banging into one another. Like me and other sinful people, we're just all banging into one another. You guys get this. You feel this? Relationships broken, affected by the fall. We see conflict between God's people even and the one in whom they are to reflect. This is where theologically we're beginning to get a little more, more practical. These are typically two areas I like to hang out a lot, right? But I think that we might need to get super practical for just a moment. Right? We might need to, to, to come down even a little bit further into like the final third of our triangle, our upside down triangle, right? We have all felt the effects of interpersonal conflict. We've all felt the effects, tension among friends and family, husbands and wives, neighbors, co-workers, superiors, and employees. We see and feel pain. Even in the most joyous of moments, we see that they are oftentimes preceded by immense pressure and stress, anxiousness and pain. There's this imagery that we see laid out through the consequences of the fall pertaining to uh, bearing children. Even these joyous occasions, right, are marked by some things leading up that cause these types of emotions. This is the nature of creation now. So let's ask ourselves for just a moment, right, let's come together. And let's ask ourselves honestly, do do we ever survey the landscape of our lives and just say, even if it's only to ourselves, I feel like I'm cursed, right? Like, I feel like I'm cursed. I had a conversation with a really good friend of mine a few months ago. And he was telling me about a conversation that he had um, with a friend of his on the phone about the troubles that they were experiencing in their lives. And about uh, two-thirds of the way through the conversation, the friend says to the friend, like, I just feel like I'm cursed. To which, like, you and I can probably relate a tad bit. Like, everything's going wrong. Everything's falling apart, right? I feel like I'm cursed. To which, I can respond confidently that, in fact, you are, right? Now, it's not comforting, but it's true. 
And I am. Like, we live in a cursed world. We live in a fallen and cruel world. That is the consequence of sin and rebellion. And you go, wow, like as as high as a mountain as we finished on last week, this week, I am in the depths of despair. Good, right? Like good, like we need to be there. Like we need to see that and we need to feel that. We need to be honest. We need to check naivety and we need to like just be able to say, this is what the world looks like now, right? And this is what I look like now, because when we do, what we will find is that God has positioned us to take great joy and pleasure in that portion that we skipped over as we talked about the consequences and the curse that now reside over you and I in this world. You guys ready for this? We finish with God's promise to redeem. Right? We, we see sin's consequences and the curse, but now we, we see peppered in here this promise of God to rescue and to restore. In Genesis 3.15, God says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now he's talking to the serpent and he's talking about consequence here, right? Punishment. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if we read this and we're unfamiliar, we go, well, this sounds hopeful, right? Like apparently like this great deceiver and the enemy of life is to one day be ultimately judged, punished and cast out. His head is to be crushed by this one, but we also observe that there's this other party, right? There's this, there's this one who will be a part of this work, the seed of the woman, but it does come at great cost, doesn't it? Like it comes at a cost. Maybe at this point we can't even say it comes at great cost, right? But we do observe this, this image that's laid out, that, that there will be one, the seed of the woman, who will um, sufficiently and finally crush, killing evil. But in the process, his heel will be struck, right? The seed of the woman will, um, will be struck. But in the process of this all playing itself out, we will see that, that the head of the enemy will be crushed. Verse 20, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. Now, why did we skip from verse 15 to verse 20 there? Well, because verse 20 informs the way that we understand verse 15, which informs the way that we understand everything. Did you guys get that? Verse 20 informs the way that we understand verse 15, and verse 15 informs the way that we understand everything. You see, the core issue of Genesis 3 is the failure to trust the goodness, kindness, and generosity of God, right? That is the issue. That is what has gotten humanity, um, Eve and her husband Adam, into the predicament. And its ripple effects, as we have already stated, continue to be felt today. The core issue of Genesis 3 is... 
is the failure to trust the goodness, kindness, and generosity of God. It is to say that God is withholding something good from us within this world that he created for human flourishing. That is, again and again and again, described as good. Right? It is to say that God is not good, or at least as good as he would have us to think at, that he is. Now, the promise of Genesis 3.15 does something incredible. The promise of Genesis 3.15 affirms the same goodness, kindness, and generosity that humanity questioned resulting in the fall of man. So humanity questions these attributes of God. And as a result, they rebel from God. And as a result, they fall, right? And sin enters into the world. There is this separation now, right, between, between God and his image bearers. All as a result of, of questioning the nature, characteristics of God. Now, following the fall of Adam, humanity, right, we see God take this moment to reaffirm the same nature, attributes, and characteristics that were called into question that has gotten them into the predicament that they're in. Here's what that is. That is grace. Okay? Like this, it's, it's grace. God does this. He, he pursues his rebellious image bearers. Right? God pursues his rebellious image bearers here in Genesis chapter 3. And, and God continues because his nature is the same and he is unchanging to pursue rebellious image bearers today. He restores them. Right? And then um, he, he covers them. He calls them out of the thickets and then he, he covers them. Genesis 3.15 provides a point of reference by which we read the entire Bible. Genesis 3.15 provides a point of reference by which we understand the world that we live in. It is here that we see what is referred to by theologians as the Proto-Evangelium. What does that mean? We're talking about Genesis 3.15 here. This is the first proclamation of the gospel. Amidst sin's entrance and humanity's fall, creation's disorder, we see a pronouncement of hope. We see this pronouncement of hope and a promise to redeem through the seed of the woman who through an act of self-sacrifice would overcome the serpent. Or who, would, who would overcome and defeat the evil one, crushing his head and bringing restoration to humanity's relationship with God. God covers Adam and he covers his bride. In verse 20. Shedding the blood of an innocent in order to relieve them from this sense of shame. In the garden, at the tree, we see a reversal take place. Things are not as they ought to be. What is good is now corrupted. Only God promises to save from sin. God promises to save from death and punishment through the seed of the woman here in Genesis 3.15. And not one chapter later, what we will find is a question arise. And we'll explore this more next week. We see this question arise, and it is this. How in the world is God going to fulfill this promise? How is he going to do it? Right? There's this, there's this tension. 
We see the world and we see its corrupt nature. We see humanity and their great rebellion only seeming to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And we go, okay, can God really accomplish this? Can he really do this? Can he really crush evil and redeem a people? Will he do it and, and can he do it? That's the, the question, that's the tension that we, um, that we find ourselves in as we go into Genesis chapter 4. What we find is that he uh, will and he does. Right? Despite this downward spiral of sin observable in the scriptures, among people and in the world, God remains faithful to his promise because God is a faithful God. Our God is a faithful God. And he is faithful to his promise. He preserves, he displays his faithfulness. And we can trace it through the biblical narrative and throughout redemptive history. At the cross, we see a second reversal. Right? So we've got this reversal that takes place. Are you guys with me? Is everybody okay? Awesome. Just checking in. I want to make sure we're all good, right? At this tree right here, we see this reversal take place. Oh my gosh, everything that was good is now like bad and broken, corrupted, in need of being remade. What are we going to do? Well, there's the promise. And then we see that there is at the cross of Christ another reversal. The seed of the woman and the victor over evil takes the place of man on the tree. And in doing so, he exposes human intellect and wisdom as total foolishness. We see a crucified king serves as a source of salvation for the fallen and the cursed. You and I, recipients of, as Paul articulates so clearly in his letter to the Romans, Adam's rebellion. You and I, recipients of Adam's sin, rescued by faith in Christ Jesus, his death and resurrection back to life. We see that death and sin are incapable of derailing. This is incredible. Get this. Take this home, wrap it up, put it in your pocket, remember this. Death and sin are incapable of derailing the plan of God to display his nature and power, judging sin and rescuing sinners. Did you get it? Because that's, that's really good news, right? And that, that, that death and sin are incapable of derailing the plan of God To display his nature and power by judging sin and rescuing people. We see that that God's people now rescued and redeemed by faith in Jesus and his righteousness, his sacrifice as the one capable and sufficient to crush the head of the serpent and to save those who have rebelled from God, bringing us back into relationship with him, are now equipped to enjoy God. And to respond in a broken world, filled with other broken clay pieces, right? Other broken, other broken people in a way that reflects the kindness, generosity, and grace of God as we were intended to, right? Like this is the reversal that takes place. This is what God does through redemptive history. And so again, let's think super practically for a moment. Work is hard. Relationships are troubled. And chaos seems to wear the crown. The Spirit of God enables the people of God to serve joyfully in a different and difficult work context, reflecting Christ's joyful service in a difficult world. 
The gospel informs the way that we work, right? The way that we relate interpersonally with other people. The Spirit of God now enables the people of God to love and to serve difficult people. Let's think about the myriad of ways that this like presents itself in our lives, like difficult spouses, right? Difficult family members and roommates, neighbors, as we as we love, as we have been loved, right? And, and, and serve the difficult spouse, family member, roommate, and neighbor. Because we have been served as difficult spouses, um, family members, roommates, and neighbors, right? Do we get this? This is the super practical element. Like we've gone all the way from the top of the triangle all the way down here to the bottom. That's it. This is what the gospel does. This is what the Spirit of God enables and empowers God's people to do. Here, each of us must do some reflection and some gospel consideration. How do we live differently out of God's great love for us? How do we live differently out of God's great love for us in a sin-cursed world among other sin-cursed people desiring now not to be God, but to reflect God? That's the heart change. That's the transformation. That's the perspective shift that takes place. We don't desire to be God. We ought not desire to be God. We ought to desire to reflect God. Right? And so let that be our heart's desire. And let that inform the way that we go about participating in each and every one of these areas. In Genesis chapter 3, we see humanity retreat to the thickets in shame marked by sin. We're about to land this. Here it is. This drives us to the table. Right? This, like, this drives us into worship and song. Humanity retreats to the bushes in shame marked by sin. In Christ Jesus, we see the good shepherd of God. Right? And the, the promised seed searching the thickets for lost sheep and restoring us through His righteous sacrifice in our place. With the hope of the resurrection. In verse 22, God says that man has become like one of us. We see this Trinitarian conversation taking place, knowing good and evil. And he places now, following the... um, the expulsion of Adam and his bride from the garden, this cherubim to guard the tree of life. Why? Well, because death is a consequence of sin, not only spiritually but physically. However, we see throughout this story that rescue is possible, right? That eternal separation is avoidable as life is embraced in and through Christ Jesus, who undoes the curse, replacing banishment, with blessing, as our eyes are opened to see our sin and our mouths confess need and confidence. I want to close with this. This is where we're ending. I want us to think about a, a hymn that talks about the degree to which God accomplishes all of this. It's one that you're familiar with, probably. We sing it um, most oftentimes at Christmas, although I'm not sure why. It's not necessarily just a Christmas hymn, but we are probably familiar with it from Christmas. In 1719, Isaac Watts penned a series of songs inspired by the psalms, including Joy to the World. Right? You guys are familiar with this, perhaps, right? Like, you could be in this room and you're not even a Christian, and you're like, yeah, I've heard Joy to the World, right? Joy to the world. 
which traces, interestingly enough, the redemptive story throughout history, from the promise in the garden, Genesis 3.15, to Christ's glorious return, at which point we see the final and ultimate reversal as our sin-cursed world is recreated, evil is judged, and the people of God are rescued and glorified with Christ forever. Watts writes this. Just close your eyes and listen to this for a minute. Just think about what this looks like. I think about how this happens and, and how God is making it happen. How it's happened, how it is happening, and how it will happen. These are the three spheres, right? That we're, that we're seeing this happen. In Joy to the World, Watts writes this. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. This is where we're going. Right? This is where we're going. Genesis starts um, this story, a journey that we will continue over the next 48 weeks as we seek a greater understanding of God's story, His nature, and desire for and from His people. And so let's pray that God would give us his heart and desire to lean in to this story. Let's pray together.